Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, explore, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to a place that, by rights, is paradise. You've heard so many good things about it. All your friends tell you it's great. A short, smart novel about baseball. What could be better? Nothing. Nothing in the world. And yet. The book, in the full glory of its title, is The Universal Baseball Association, Inc., J. Henry Waugh Prop, as in proprietor. The author is the American writer Robert Coover, whose solid reputation for POMO ingeniousness is evidently not based on this particular work from 1968. And now, without further ado, let's exchange lineup cards and play ball. Ooh, the premise of this book is good. It's very good. For starters, like I said, it's about baseball. So already we're on the front foot, feeling the momentum, imaginary or real, and going to the bottom of the first with a three-run lead. More precisely, the novel focuses on the character of Henry Waugh, the proprietor of the Universal Baseball Association, or UBA, a league of eight teams that, at the beginning of the book, is in its 56th year of existence. The story itself starts amidst a regular season game, but as is quickly apparent, it's not any kind of game. Bottom half of the seventh, Brock's boy had made it through another inning unscratched. One, two, three, 21 down and just six outs to go, and Henry's heart was racing. He was sweating with relief and tension all at once, unable to sit, unable to think, in there, with them. Oh yes, boys, it was on. More than just another ball game now, history. And Damon Rutherford was making it. The history being made is a perfect game, where the pitcher of a team faces the minimum number of opposing batters without allowing a base runner to reach. 27 up, 27 down, a rarity in any baseball league. And Damon Rutherford, the UBA's number one rookie pitcher, is on the verge of making it happen. Like a baseball fan listening to the game on the radio, Henry hangs on every one of Rutherford's pitches while playing along in his own mind, picturing the scene in minute detail, calculating the likely outcomes for the next pitch, the next batter, the batter after next, and strangely, though not implausibly, rolling dice along with the action. Baseball, which, for all its statistical likelihoods, still turns, on a play-by-play basis, on the element of luck, gathers a lot of superstition in its wake. And a perfect game, where luck needs to conspire unreservedly with the pitcher on the mound, gathers even more superstition. So Henry's dice-rolling habit doesn't seem out of place as we open the story, nor is the fact that when he ignores the procession of the game, the game itself seems to stop. All of this is true to the experience of following baseball. On the one hand, we sometimes think we can control the action on the field, down to when and what pitch is thrown. On the other hand, if we ignore it, the game seems to disappear. For the baseball fan of this ilk, there is a strange pull between helplessness and complete delusional control. In Damon Rutherford's game, the eighth inning has passed without incident. Now comes the final inning, the ninth. Rutherford gets his first batter out. Then the second. Then... Hard John Horvath took a cut at Rutherford's second pitch, a letter-high inside curve, pulled it down the third baseline. Hat Rack Hines took it backhanded, 
paused one mighty spellbinding moment, then fired across the diamond to Goodman James, and Horvath was out. The game was over. Just like that, a perfect game. Henry Waugh, bathing in the joy of reflected glory, flies out onto the street and goes straight to the local dive to celebrate. And it's there, at the bar, where Henry comes into contact with the outside world, that the reader gets the sense that what he or she has just read is not quite what it appeared to be. In the bar, the ebullient Henry chats up the bartender. He orders a special round of drinks for himself and for the designated woman in the joint, and before his first sip, he's already reveling in the success of Damon Rutherford. Every discussion he joins, everything he sees, touches, experiences, is turned back to the game, or the league. The bartender is given an alternate name, the name of the man who keeps the UBA's bar where the players drink. The songs that play on the jukebox are songs that refer to UBA league history. The woman joins, talking about all the runs she's going to score, and Henry, while seeming to understand that she's coming on to him, prefers to interpret her words as a reference to all the runs that will be scored in the game. When Henry takes the woman home, he asks her to call him Damon, as in Damon Rutherford. They laugh softly, hysterically, flowing together. She let go of her grip on the ball. He slipped off, unmingling their sweat. Oh, that's a game, Henry. That's a really great old game. Kinky, I guess. The point, that Henry's head is soaked in baseball, is obvious. What becomes equally so is that the Universal Baseball Association is a figment of that head's imagination. Henry, as it turns out, is an accountant, and only an accountant. The UBA, such as it is, is a role-playing game, something like Dungeons and Dragons, except without the 16-sided dice, or whatever they, and yes, I used the word they, used. In Henry's world, the game is everything, and he is every part of it. He's proprietor, league commissioner, team owner, manager, player, as well as official historian, fan, singer-songwriter of the game's many anthems, and, looming above all, a god of this self-enclosed universe. A theistic clockmaker god, the kind favored by the 18th century philosophers, one who builds a machine, sets it in motion, and watches as it spins out new realities. In the UBA, the actions of the machine are determined when Henry rolls his three dice. Each combination refers to a specific event, from base hit, to caught stealing, to pinch hitter, hit batsman, and, in extraordinary cases, bench clearing brawls, injuries, and of course, because this is quite serious fiction, death. In concept, Henry's UBA resembles the stratomatic baseball board games of the late 20th century. I can't believe I've just described the late 20th century as its own separate and distant era, but there you go. The difference would seem to be only in scale. Whereas Stratomatic fits into a box, Henry's game is a religion, a universe. But on closer reflection, even this doesn't set Henry's game apart. It's only when we realize the game is a parody that we see it exposes a truth at the heart of every diehard fan, whether that's a fan of the actual game, the Stratomatic game, or Henry as a fan of his UBA. And the truth is that, for that diehard fan, the game can very easily become everything. And while Henry may seem nuts, we can relate to him and even envy him, because in his devotion to the game, he has left reality far behind. With this strong setup, the reader looks forward to what's next. A problem quickly establishes itself, though. What's next is more of the same. The game. Whatever incidents of drama there are, like the question of what Henry is going to do with the girl he's brought home from the bar, or what Henry is going to do about all the hours he's slacking off at work, are incidental to the time spent in the UBA. As for that time, 
What began as thrilling descriptions of games, players, stories, action, quickly becomes overwhelmingly repetitive. The occasional new thing that occurs on the field seems merely an excuse for the author to flex his writerly muscles. Coover puts a lot of energy into his work, but, like the current state of fusion, more of it goes into the work than comes out of it. The names, nicknames, storylines, songs, clever on their own, soon meld into one another. There are attempts at diversion. For instance, when Henry explains the UBA to a co-worker, Lou, he puts forward the idea that history, like his game, is entirely about numbers and measurements, a thought that has a certain Hellenic ring to it. Likewise, the argument that the imaginary world is a more meaningful one than the real, in light of which the word real needs serious reconsideration. This strongly recalls Descartes. And the two ideas do come together in a scene where Henry proposes expanding the League to include space teams. What are you talking about, Henry? Lou says. The space race. See, I was thinking, if you could just work it out so that statistically it was more exciting, and see, you could make a rule where the teams could buy, sell, and trade personnel. And then for rule infractions, you could bench key scientists and pilots. But these trails, boldly struck, don't lead us far. The reader is always brought back to the game, and while it's difficult to say this as an avowed baseball fan, The game in this book begins to resemble the game as it is experienced by non-fans. An effing boring waste of time, a so-called competition where nothing happens. While reading this book, I was put in the place of that non-fan, the person reluctantly brought to the ballpark or forced to watch the game on the tube. And as Henry himself concedes about the UBA, Total one-sided participation was growing even more oppressive than his office job. This confession precedes one that is even more surprising. Henry says he doesn't even like baseball. It's the numbers and all they allow and imply that is the subject of Henry's devotion. Those numbers could relate to pool, pinball, national elections, anything. Baseball, with its myriad complexities, just happens to be the most effective framework. As a book that describes the mania of a person who tries to be both God and Job, a person subject to God's whims, the Universal Baseball Association, Inc., J. Henry Waugh Prop, which started so brightly, goes nowhere. And before you say that going nowhere may be the point, let me stop you right there and take a turn. One book that indulges in the madness of a self-created world that somehow gets out of hand but goes nowhere is a favorite of mine, a novel by the Peruvian author Mario Vargas Llosa called Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter. In that book, there are two competing storylines, one of the protagonist, Mario's, infatuation with, and later marriage to, the former wife of his uncle, that would be the Aunt Julia, the other storyline follows the radio plays by the scriptwriter, Pedro Camacho. Pedro churns out plots like mad, stories about pregnant teenagers, police detectives, high court judges, bug exterminators, lovelorn nuns, and after a while, all the dishes he's spinning begin to collide into each other. The scriptwriter loses control. The world he created starts to generate new worlds on its own. This is a story that goes nowhere in spectacular fashion. Coover, in his novel, hints at this possibility in the final, outstanding chapter of this book. I won't say anything about it in case you want to travel this road on your own, but as an ending, it impresses and depresses in equal measure. It impresses as a reimagination of the world you've been inhabiting for the previous 200 pages. It depresses because, why didn't it come sooner? To know the author had this trick in his back pocket, but decided not to play it until well past the due date, That's about as useful as having your ace pitcher throw 37 innings of shutout ball in September when your team's eight games out of the playoffs. In other words, 
it's too damn late. In closing, there are effective, fascinating, and engaging ways of going nowhere, as Vargas Llosa shows, and then there is the opposite way, which Coover too ably demonstrates. Going nowhere for the sake of going nowhere may be the basis of excellent philosophy, but without an ounce of self-consciousness on the part of the author, it doesn't make for much of a novel. That's why Camus' The Play is an infinitely better read than The Outsider. But that's an argument for another day. Thank you very much for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Demons, which previously went under the name The Possessed. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelt the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice, at Burning Books Pod. With help from the notoriously mild-mannered Earl Weaver, manager of the Baltimore Orioles, I want to thank Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. You ain't no good! No, you aren't either. You aren't either. You ain't no good! You're no fucking good either. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Ten fucking years from now, who's in the Hall of Fame? Oh, you're gonna be in the Hall of Fame. You know it! Why? You know it! up World Series? You know it! You're gonna be in the Hall of Fame? You know it! I've won more than I've lost, kid! Oh, no, you haven't. And as always, go Jays. Mm -hmm.